Okay, Jesse, I'm still having nightmares about the giggling granny. What an insane story. What do you got for me this time? Well, Andy, for this special Christmas edition of Love Murder, I give you the biggest body count we've ever had on the show. This is the brutal, absolutely incomprehensible, extremely murderously grinchy story of Ronald Gene Simmons, who killed 16 men, women, and children over Christmas week in 1987. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, the podcast where true crime meets human interest and where even the most beloved holidays aren't safe from murder and mayhem. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. And by the way, if you do leave a review, we'll send you a sticker. Yes, we've launched a merch store and to celebrate, we're sending everyone who leaves us a review and also who had um, a sticker as a little hookup. Thank you so much for your support. And um, if you want to DM us, you can, or if you'd like to email us, our email is lovers at lovemurder.love. Yes. Amazing. We always, always, always love seeing your views. And I think they have special meaning to us this holiday season as we are just full of gratitude for you. Okay, Andy, last week was insane. It was completely wild how she killed all of those people over such a long period of time. We have like her male counterpart who killed so efficiently that he murdered, oh, like more people than the giggling granny did in just a week. That's crazy. Also, did you say his name's Gene Simmons? Yes, his name is Ronald Gene Simmons, which makes Googling him not fun. Not at all. I'm not looking forward to that at all. (laughs) And there's only so many pictures of Gene Simmons you want to see when you're trying to find information of true crime. (laughs) Yes, Ronald Gene Simmons. And it's really funny, too, because it's they're doing that serial killer thing where they give them the middle name. Yeah. But like they could have maybe left that one out and it could have just been Ronald Ronald Simmons. (laughs) Yeah. So funny. Yeah. This guy is not the fun front man of Kiss though. I guarantee you. Yeah. This one's going to be pretty rough. So guys, buckle up and welcome to a winter horror land. It had been an icy, peaceful post-Christmas day ease into the work week on Monday, December 28th, 1987. It was that nebulous vacation, but not vacation, couple of days that followed Christmas but preceded New Year's. That morning, a madman ex-employee had shattered the joy and peace of the holiday season when he went on a murderous shooting spree at four of his former places of employment, killing two and placing four others in critical care. The very soul of small-town Russellville, Arkansas, was rocked to the core by the unprecedented explosion of violence. 
Now, the culprit, an ex-military madman named Ronald Simmons, sat stoically in police custody after a hostage situation and eventual surrender. Simmons refused to speak to the police, only giving a terse nod each time they asked him if he was responsible for the crimes at multiple locations. They were about to book him in the local jail when the death threats from angry and bewildered townspeople began to pour in. They decided to transfer him to a hospital for a psychiatric evaluation, as well as for his own safety. But also because no one in their right mind could commit this atrocity only a couple of days after Christmas, could they? During the transfer, it occurred to Deputy James Bolin, who would soon become sheriff of the county, that he recognized this deranged man as a recluse who lived with his large family up in the hills. Alarmed at the man's mental state and fearful for the family, he leaned in and asked Simmons, You've got a family up there on Mockingbird Hill. Are they doing all right? Simmons stubbornly, infuriatingly kept his stony silence. But Bolin spied his lip quiver and what he thought might have been a tear escape his eye. It was the greatest emotional response the madman had given yet. Bolin immediately radioed for officers to do a wellness check. What those officers would find would haunt them for the rest of their lives and stretch the investigatory limits of both the local police and their state counterparts. It would take days for the forensics team to uncover every last corpse. All 14 of the bodies on Mockingbird Hill. Those bodies belong to women, men, and children as young as 20 months old. Each one of them, that's a baby, that's a baby. Each one of them part of Ronald Gene Simmons' family he cruelly dispatched over a one-week period during the Christmas holiday. This is Bloody Christmas, the Mockingbird Hill Massacre, and it is by far the most horrifying, deadly, and deranged case we've ever covered on Love Murder. I know we're not closing the year out on a warm fuzzy. I'm really sorry, guys. This one, I was looking for a Christmas case. And I found out that my literary crush, Ryan Green, had uh, written a book about this event called Obeying Evil. So of course, I had to pick it up. I also suggest you check out his other books. I think that they're free on Kindle Unlimited, a lot of his work. So he covers a lot of serial killers and other people that we we don't really, it doesn't really fit with love murder because I usually try to make it about people who, you know, were in relationships or loved the people that they killed. Um, so I would recommend a lot of his books. Uh, if you guys have time and you're snowed in and you're stuck inside anyway, um, check out some of Ryan Green's work because I have, Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. So, who is this maniac? Ronald Gene Simmons was born in July of 1940 in Chicago to mother Loretta and father William Simmons. His world was rocked when he was only three years old and his father died suddenly from a massive stroke. Within months, Loretta remarried a military man also named William and the family moved around to several military bases, never staying in the same place for more than a year or two. These disruptions seemed to have a huge effect on Ronald. Always the new kid, he gained a reputation as a troublemaker and a bully. Becoming aggressive and cruel rather than building the necessary social skills to make friends. By 16, he had been expelled from several schools and his parents had no choice but to enroll him into military school. 
To everyone's astonishment, he did remarkably well. Within the military structure, his aggressive impulses were turned to constructive goals, and his desperate need for control was satisfied. This would become definitely a trend in his life. He is a serious control need killer. Okay. He finished his military school sentence, but refused to return to civilian school, instead dropping out entirely at 17 and joining the Navy the moment they would take him. His first posting was at the Bremerton Naval Base in Washington, where he met a beautiful young woman named Brasabi Rebecca Ulibari, who oh. went by the name Becky. Yeah, I looked it up. So she was really beautiful. And Bersabi is actually a Persian name, and her surname, Ulibari, is actually Basque. No way! Yeah, which I'm Basque, and isn't Dan Basque? Dan might be part Basque, yeah, they're uncertain. It's like the Canadian, the quote-unquote Canadian, French-Canadian side of him actually might be Basque, yeah. Yeah, that was my dad did. My dad always thought he was French-Canadian, and then he did a 23andMe, and he's half Basque. So yeah, Becky was really young. She was a year younger than Ronald. She was known for her stunning, long, black, thick hair, When Ronald was redeployed to Cloudcroft, New Mexico, Becky came with him, and the two were married in 1960, just days before Ronald turned 20 and Becky was still only 19. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So she didn't really have any time to establish any sort of independence or life of her own. She went directly from her parents' home in Washington into Ronald's realm, and he was just immediately controlling with her. I mean, textbook, abusive, asshole controlling. Yeah. He forced her to cut off all contact with her family once they moved to New Mexico. He dictated what she was allowed to wear, how she wore her hair, and how often she was allowed to see her new friends in New Mexico, which was pretty much never. He wouldn't let her wear makeup or get dressed up for fear that other men would notice her. And he restricted access to the mail and phone. So she was left completely isolated at all times. Whoa. Yeah. So like I said, textbook abusers move. First, he cut off all contact with the outside world. Two, he made her completely financially and emotionally dependent upon him. And then three, he impregnated her early and often to solidify their bond and her dependence upon him because it's a lot easier to leave an abusive fuck when it's just you and it's a lot less easy when you have seven children. Okay, that was my next question because you said he impregnated her often. I'm like, did she have all the babies or? Yes. So she, they had their first baby She got pregnant within months of their wedding, and their firstborn child, Ronald Gene Simmons Jr., of course, was born right around their first anniversary. And then they went on to have seven total children over an 18-year span. So she just never got a break. They were pretty spaced out. So first there was Junior, then daughter Sheila two years later, followed by William, Loretta, Eddie, Marianne, and the baby girl was named after Becky herself, little Rebecca Lynn. With the oh my chaos, God, that's my mom's name. Your mom's name is Rebecca Lynn. Yeah. Oh my God, we've had two people on this show that have your mom's exact name. Because remember, there was Becky Jones from one of the Cucktoberfests, and now we have little Rebecca Lynn. Oh God, try not to think of your mom as an eight-year-old because bad things happen to little baby. I Rebecca was. Lynn. My mom. My mom had great parents, so. She's fine. Yes. (laughs) She did not have these maniacs. No. Well, no offense to Becky. She wasn't a maniac. 
Um, With the chaos that accompanies children, especially that many children, Ronald's need for control and abuse escalated. And he often beat Becky and the kids for like the smallest infractions. It would be stuff like she didn't empty his uh, ashtray in time and it wasn't like washed out or she put a pitcher in a place he didn't like and he would like beat her in front of all the children. The only child that seemed to escape his wrath was his favorite firstborn daughter, Sheila. Unfortunately, his interest in his own daughter went beyond fatherly into the perverse. Ew. Uh Uh-huh. So Ronald very rarely let his family visit any relatives or have any guests to the home. So reports were few and far in between. But when Sheila was about 15, the entire family visited Becky's sister for Christmas And Becky's sister, who is Sheila's aunt, observed some troubling behavior between Ronald and Sheila, the teenager. The behavior that the rest of his immediate well-trained family believed was perfectly normal made Becky's sister incredibly uncomfortable. So this was um, from her report uh, that Ryan Green wrote about. Sheila came over to the seat where Ronald was scowling at the room and draped herself over his lap as though she were a toddler rather than a girl well on her way to womanhood. When even that wasn't enough to break him out of his characteristic foul mood, she leaned in and gave him a kiss, not on the cheek as a daughter would, but full on the lips. Yeah. The rest of Ronald's children and even Becky didn't bat an eye. This was just normal for them. And that's what Becky's sister, like Mama Becky, yeah. said was the most disturbing thing was that no one in the family was like, ew, you guys are gross or wow, that's weird. Everyone was just like totally like acting like this was normal. Yeah. Ugh. In between grossly abusing his entire family, Ronald did remarkably well in his military career. He eventually retired in 1979 at the rank of Master Sergeant. During his 21-year tenure with the military, he had acquired numerous awards and honors, including the Bronze Star Medal, the Republic of Vietnam Gallantry Cross for his service as an airman, and the Air Force Ribbon for Excellent Markmanship. Mm. Foreboding. Around the time of Ronald's retirement, he apparently called a family meeting to inform the Simmonses that things would be changing in the family dynamic. Oh, God. Sheila, then 17 years old, was pregnant with his child. Mm-hmm. Oh, and this fam- is very um, Black Dahlia. Oh, yes. Oh, guys, if you haven't listened to Root of Evil... The podcast, I mm-hmm. highly suggest it. It is spectacular. It's so so good. It is master levels of effed up, though. Just so you know, to warn you, it is and like this is like, just a preview. So well recorded and like uh-huh. documented and and it's psychological because aspect. it's the family. Yeah, it was awesome. absolutely phenomenal. It's like Andy. It was one of our like first podcasts that we became obsessed with. Yeah, it's. It's spectacular. They did an amazing job. Yeah. So this is just devastating. And because the family was so abused and so basically kept away from all of civilization and isolated, they felt like there was nothing they could do. He basically told them that the family was going to be restructured to include his daughter essentially as a second wife and partner. Oh, 
Yeah, with his impending granddaughter slash daughter to be considered just another part of the family. Yeah, so they seem to go along with this. I'm I'm sure that they, the kids had nowhere to go. The wife had been abused for years. There was just nothing they could do. The details of Sheila's grooming and sexual abuse have never been revealed as Simmons refused to speak of it. And of course, by the time all of his abhorrent crimes were realized he had wiped out every witness that could have yeah told the story of what was going on inside of that home what we do know is that ronald gene simmons jr the eldest son whom they called gene did attempt to help his sister gene contacted sheila's high school counselor anonymously and spilled the details of her pregnancy as well as suggesting the nefarious parentage of the baby to be So he was terrified of his dad, but he tried his best to alert some official about what was going on. Over the course of many meetings, starting with the first in which Sheila failed to deny that she was pregnant, her guidance counselor worked on her to get information about the father of the child. While she was 17 years old and thus over the age of consent in New Mexico, Sheila had never had a boyfriend in all of her high school life. She wasn't allowed to have friends or boyfriends or ever go anywhere. And the anonymous tip had set alarm bells ringing. After almost a month, she finally broke down and admitted that the father of her child was her own father, Ronald. Holy shit. Could you imagine being the guidance counselor? Oh my God. I'd be like, you're not going home. We're, you can come stay in my house. Like we can figure something out. You're going to a shell. I don't know what we have to do, but I would be so sick to my stomach. If she's the legal age of consent, does that mean that she could make a decision to like leave at that, like to leave the home? I don't know because it's weird that it's the age of consent, but it's not the age of technical adulthood. Cause I think it's still 18 everywhere. I mean, that would definitely... Yeah, it would be grounds for emancipation for sure. But he also had this crazy psychological hold over her. And in the very least, even if she said she was somehow a willing participant in this, based on the timing of when she got pregnant, she might not have been the age of consent. And there's also incest laws everywhere. So he would still get in trouble for this. Criminal charges were filed almost immediately, but Sheila outright refused to testify about the identity of the child's father. So she revealed it to the counselor, Yeah, but she would not participate in any of the legal proceedings. And of course, I think this was in huge part to the years and years of psychological torment and conditioning. But also it's kind of understandable that as a 17-year-old girl, you don't want to have everyone in a courtroom in your town in the newspaper knowing that you're the victim of sexual assault and abuse and incest that type of stuff shouldn't be allowed to like be covered by Mm. media it should be in like a private closed protected courtroom yes with very few witnesses to the court proceedings and like only child psychiatrists and doctors and the legal representation that needed to be there like that that needs to like have such reform because it doesn't like look out to protect the victim at all right now no it just it would be hard to come to terms with what was happening to you and what had been happening and i think when you live in a bubble like they were living in a bubble that she could trick herself into feeling like this was normal and this was love. Yeah. But then when you get like people's horrified reactions, all of a sudden you feel shame and dirty and terrible and sick, you know? So 
I know. I feel I feel really, really bad for Sheila. And I think a huge tragedy of this story is that you'll see she really like comes through and pulls her life together and her dad ruins it again. So yeah, it also didn't help that Ronald was launching a full out emotional campaign against her. He blamed her for bringing the family into disrepute and for quote, ruining his life and destroying the happiness they had found together. Wow. Piece of shit. I was literally just going to say that. Mm. In a surviving letter from the time he wrote, you have destroyed me and you have destroyed my trust in you. I will see you in hell. Wow. Thanks, dad slash father of the baby. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, dad slash baby daddy. Baby daddy. <laughs> baby daddy daddy. Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Ronald demanded the family close ranks at this time, still allowing the children to go to school, but all other activities were strictly forbidden. He wouldn't even allow Becky, his wife, to go to the grocery store alone, most likely due to the fact that there were some witnesses who said that at this point, this was the first ever serious attempt she ever made to leave Ronald, which makes sense. I mean, she was horrified and trying to protect future children. Yeah. It seems that Sheila was physically separated from Ronald at this point. I don't know if she went into foster care or what the situation was. It wasn't in in the, the documents I could find because later letters were found that had been exchanged by the two. But it's unclear where exactly she was while the investigation was ongoing. The family was beginning to fragment as Gene, the son, finally defied his father and left home to set out on his own. After that occurred and he was about to be arrested for incest and child rape, Ronald forced his entire family to uproot and flee New Mexico. So they should have had him in jail right away. Yeah. yeah. But he was out. And I don't know how he got Sheila back, but Sheila went with him. Ronald had spent some time as a child at a couple military bases in Arkansas. So that's where he took his family. And Sheila ended up giving birth to a baby girl there named Sylvia. They settled for two years in Ward, Arkansas, living a hermetic life where Ronald forbade any contact with the outside world and worked odd jobs under the table to keep food on the table. After the first topsy-turvy years in exile, the family moved to Mockingbird Hill, a remote area about 15 miles outside of Dover, Arkansas, where they settled down in what sounds like a really creepy compound. Is, is And when you say the family, it's the whole family still. The whole family. It okay. is. It's basically his entire family except for the eldest son, Gene, who escaped. Okay. Yeah. So this is how Ryan Green described Mockingbird Hill. To reach the house, you had to drive up a long winding driveway of rutted red clay in a heavily wooded area, practically impassable in the heavy rain or snow that was typical for the area. Once you had passed the dozens of no trespassing signs, that dotted the path, the structure itself came into sight. The house, in quotations, was comprised of two aging mobile homes that had been welded together haphazardly into a single larger structure. After the chaotic period of their escape and cross-country flight, several of the older children were beginning to rail against Ronald's control. Jean had already left the family before they took flight, and some of the older children, Sheila included, were now beginning to seriously question whether they wanted to spend any more time in their father's tender care. If there had never been any outside interference, then Ronald would have never shown weakness. But now that the family was coming to realize that he was not as all-powerful as he had once appeared, the seeds of rebellion had been planted. Ronald responded in the only way that he knew how. He tried to tighten his grip on them. There was no plumbing, 
nor telephone at the Mockingbird Hill compound. And Ronald forced his children to do chores from sun up to sundown to assert his dominance. Oh my God. It was the children's responsibility to build and dig a cesspit that they used for bodily waste, as well as the cinder block fencing he insisted upon to keep prying eyes out. He then layered barbed wire over the fence. And he even talks about like little Becky was only like six, five or six when they moved to Mockingbird Hill, I think. And she was like made to like lift cinder blocks and carry them and do work with all the older kids too. Yeah. It sounds like a military, like a training camp. Exactly. Yes. The only like bright spot for the kids at all was that he had been on the run for two years at this point. I think he was pretty sure they weren't going to be found and he didn't want to draw attention to them. So the kids did get to go back to school at this point. Jesus. Yeah, this was not a good environment. So Ronald had learned his lesson about allowing the outside world to see what life inside his little kingdom was really like. If absolute isolation was required to maintain absolute control, then he would create it. He had never particularly cared for the company of others anyway. In addition to learning how secretive he needed to be, he also learned the value of maintaining his family's anonymity by carefully following the rules. His children had perfect attendance at their schools, and while they had some trouble socializing, as they were on strict schedules that allowed no time for friendships or extracurriculars outside of the classroom, none of them struggled academically. That's like the saddest thing, too, is all these children had immense promise. They were really smart, actually, and great human beings. He just robbed them of any opportunity that they might have had. Yeah, everything. They remained in the middle of the pack throughout their entire school life in Arkansas, never drawing any attention to themselves or the unusual home life. Did they keep the same last names when they went back to school? Like, how could they not find him through that? I think Simmons is just a really common Common. name. Yeah. 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 While Ronald was terrorizing his family, he was also working a series of jobs that usually resulted in him getting fired for sexual harassment and or grossly misogynistic behavior. Uh unsurprisingly. Uh-uh. Because he had fled the authorities, Ronald could not collect his military pension and had to worry about money for the first time in his life. Despite the odds against him, Ronald was still able to present as an intelligent and highly organized man, and he managed to nab a pretty good job as a law clerk at Peel, Eddie, and Gibbons Law Firm in the closest large town, Russellville. Though performance reports indicate that Ronald was pretty adept at his job, he became obsessed with a young receptionist named Kathy Kendricks and subjected her to intense sexual harassment bordering on, like, real stalking behavior. Gross. Super gross. So it was around this time that Sheila was finally breaking off from the family and getting her own life. And I think that he latched on to Kathy because she was the same age as Sheila. Ugh, gross. Mm -hmm. So did Sheila take the baby? Yes. So I'll get into it in a second, exactly how everything went down. But Sheila did get out eventually with the daughter. Ugh. Kathy, of course, hadn't been groomed by the monster since birth and responded in horror to his frequent and unwelcome advances. She reported his lewd comments and disturbing behavior to her employers, and he was promptly fired. Thank God. Also, you know it must have been real bad in the 80s if he got fired for sexual harassment, because nobody got fired for that shit in the 80s. 
Ronald quickly got a job at a local oil company. He was not able to hold the position for long before his constant insubordination and arguments with his employer, along with unseemly behavior towards his female colleagues, had him on the hunt for a job once more. Meanwhile, his home life was a disaster, at least for Ronald. Becky had unsuccessfully attempted to leave Ronald once more. It seems through letters written to her sister at the time. And though she failed, at least Sheila found escape. So now I'm going to get to tell you how Sheila got out. So Sheila was around 2021 around this time. And she met a young man named Dennis McNulty and they had like just immediately hit it off. And I don't know exactly where they were. I don't know if she had a part-time job or if she was in community college or how she met him, but somehow she managed to connect with this guy. He was nine years older than her and they managed surreptitiously to start dating. And he really took just immediately fell in love with Sheila and wanted to protect her. And so he actually eloped with her and like stashed her and Sylvia in his apartment before Ronald even found out they were dating. So, so he kind of got the hint that Ronald was a psychopath. He knew it. So she told him everything. Like basically he wanted to take her on a date and she was like, I can't go on a date with you because like my dad's a monster and he's like, okay, you're 20. This is ridiculous, you know? And I think they would manage to steal like little coffee dates here or there. And she told him the full truth about- That's awesome. Yeah. So he definitely sounds like a great guy who made her feel loved and cared for and heard enough that she felt open to him telling him the truth. Yeah. So Ryan Green described in the book when Dennis actually came to inform Ronald that he was marrying or had married. I'm not sure when exactly it had happened. um, Sheila and that he had taken Sylvia and that they were living with him now. And he said he knew exactly who Sylvia's father was. And if he ever harassed or touched either of the the girl or, you know, the woman ever again, he was going to kill Ronald. And he was like, she's my wife now, so back the fuck off. Wow. What a hero. Yeah. Such a hero and so brave, like knowing what a monster this guy is. So shockingly, Dennis survived this confrontation and it appears that Ronald, for the most part, backed off. And I wonder if this was like an alpha male thing or like he knew he was like it was a losing battle. And he also was, you know, a convict on the run. So I'm sure Dennis was like, I can turn you in at any point, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So Sheila got out with Dennis and they had a very happy life for a little while. Still, the disrespect and indignities of the firings and the women in his life attempting to escape him all fueled an internal bomb that was about to go off. After the local oil company, he went to work at the Motor Freight Company, where he was an accounts receivable clerk, and he managed to hold on to this job slightly longer than his previous positions, mostly because he had kind of learned his lesson and he kept his lecherous actions to a minimum. However, at some point, a woman named Joyce Elaine Butts was appointed his supervisor and Ronald, who could barely tolerate civilian authority, had, of course, huge issues with a woman being placed in a position of authority above him. He probably had some butts about it. (laughs) He had a lot of butts about it. (laughs) Thanks for that pun. You're really bringing the light to this dark episode, Andy. 
This is what we keep you around for. Uh, so this is from Ryan Green's account of their relationship. To say that Ronald and Joyce did not get along would be something of an understatement. He could not comprehend a world in which a woman was his superior, and she could not deal with an employee who completely ignored her very basic requests. Ronald frequently went over her head to the owner of the company whenever they were in even minor disputes. Oh, God. And the, can you imagine how annoying this would be? Yeah. And the constant irritation of any insubordinate entry-level clerk soon outweighed any benefits that his marked competence in the role might have granted the company. Yeah. Um, Like, absolutely not. Also, every woman who's had a terrible, like, misogynistic, chauvinistic underling is like, oh, I know, honey. I know this guy. I've had to fire this guy. You're like, wait, what is it? A dime a dozen or not a dime a dozen? Yeah, you're like a dime a trillion. <laughs> you're Jesus, worthless piece of shit. On top of this, this is still like relatively a small town. And Joyce knew what happened with Kathy Kendricks. So when it was discovered that he had resumed his attempts at courting Kathy Kendricks, showing up at her house with flowers and sending her little notes in an attempt to gain her forgiveness and favor, despite him being a creepy, creepy dude who was 30 years older than her. And married. And married. And and the father of her daughter's, of his daughter's child. Yeah. When he was let go, it was without any recriminations from the company, but it seemed obvious to Ronald that he had lost his latest job thanks to some sort of conspiracy between the women of Arkansas and Harm. God. Definitely. Definitely all the women have a a secret club where they just have meetings about how they can bring you down. (sighs) Ronald against the world. That's, That's what it feels like to him. So he eventually found a low-level position stocking shelves at a convenience store, which is like just shows you like he's going lower and lower on the totem pole. Like he started having a fairly decent job as a law clerk and he is just burning his way through these employment opportunities. I mean, he's lucky. Yeah, he's lucky he got this job at the convenience store where he stayed for nearly a year and a half, only terminating his employment shortly before the massacre. And he quit that job, actually. Quitter. Leading up to that phase... <laughs> quitter. I wish he had been a better quitter. I wish he had quit molesting his family and killing people early on. Oh. Leading up to that fateful Christmas in 1987, Becky, with help from her eldest children, was finally, truly planning her escape from Ronald. Her eldest son, Jean, had set up a secret P.O. box in town and her children would help her to squirrel letters out to family members. So I think her kids are old enough now to try to assist their mom. In the letters, she spoke at length about her previous attempts at leaving and the reasons that she believed they had failed, placing the blame squarely on the fact that each attempt had been undertaken on the spur of the moment without any sort of planning. She did not want to have to rely on the kindness of her children for support as she tried to find her footing, and she had no idea what she would do with life outside of marriage. I mean, she got married when she was 19. Yeah, and then she was severely abused the entire time. Yeah, but she was finally finding the courage to take the final step and try. All that she wanted before fleeing the family forever was one last Christmas together. Bad move. Bad move. 
That, yeah, that was my grandma's wish this year too. Remember what happened with that? <laughs> yeah, Andy. Oh God. Also in Arkansas. Oh God, bad things happen in Arkansas. Yeah, it's not good. And I understand that, like, the most dangerous time for an abused woman is like right after she leaves. So maybe she was thinking this will be easier to have Christmas and then I leave. But she should have just struck go. all the iron. Was, yeah, just, just go. go. Yeah. Don't wait. Don't give them the time to plan your demise, you know? Mm-hmm. So this was her last found letter after the killings. In her final letter, she wrote to her second son, Billy, who had left the family married and now had a child of his own. Dear Bill, Renata, and Trey. Trey is the son. I've been thinking of all you said, Bill, and I know you are right. I don't want to live the rest of my life with dad, but I'm still trying to figure out how to start. What if I couldn't find a job for some time? You have to remember I've never had a job since I've been married or before that either. I know I have to start somewhere. It would all be so much easier if it was just me, but I have three kids also by then. So there was three young kids still in the home, which is another reason why he kept knocking her up because it's so hard to leave when you locked her down. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So if you want to do any checking by telephone, go ahead and check and we can talk about it when you come. I've decided if I borrow from mom, that would be her mother, that I would have her send it to you. I'm still all very confused. But like I said, I do know I don't want to stay with dad, but I don't want him getting any more than he deserves. Yet sometimes I feel God is telling me to be more patient. No, God is telling you to run, honey. I'll just say do some checking and then it will help make my decision. I would like for Loretta to move in with you after she turns 18. She wants to go to college and she can get a job too. I don't think San Antonio is the place for her. So also she's going to talk a little bit about her eldest son at the point at this time. And her eldest son and his wife had had a, a little baby girl who's now three years old and they'd been having some marital issues. So the three-year-old was actually living with Becky and the Simmonses. Uh, yeah, which I would not send my child into this. I don't care how just bad your marriage is. Just Barbara, just the baby. Oh my God. Yeah. Little Jean and Wilma are back together, but they want to try it out and try to come get Barbara. I'm sure enjoying Barbara. She is a sweet, lovable, polite little girl. She's a good girl and we all love her and enjoy her so much. She always has us laughing. I'm so proud of Trey. The last time you came, dad wanted to know how come you didn't stay long enough to see him too. <laughs> now that L. Jean and yeah. Because he's a fucking monster. Yeah, everyone can see it, Becky. Now that El Jean and Wilma are back together, I wish they could move from San Antonio. Barbara needs both her parents. They have both been through so much. I hope it works out. I love them both. Wilma wrote me a letter telling me she loves little Jean very much, and she must. She went back to him. I'm sure she has been hurt deeply. I want to see all of my children happy. I've remembered a lot what you said, Bill. I am a prisoner here and the kids too. I know when I get out, I might need help. Dad has had me like a prisoner and that freedom might be hard for me to take. Yet I know it would be great having my children visit me anytime, having a telephone, going shopping if I want, going to church. So sad. That's all she wants is just for the very basic freedoms. Jesus Christ. Every time I think of freedom, I want out as soon as possible. I don't want to put any burden on my children. And I think it's best while or before I get out too old. I want out, but it's the beginning. Once I get a job and a place, then I can handle it with the mental support of my children. I can do it. It was hard to talk in front of little Jean. 
He had been having it so hard and his problems were deeply in my mind. I felt sorry for him. I was so afraid what he might go back and do. You are lucky, Bill. You have a very good wife. She has led you the right way and that is toward God. She is very pretty too. I'm always thank God for sending you a good wife. I'm thankful for Dennis too. Dennis, who's Sheila's husband. Yeah. Give my darling Trey a lot of hugs and kisses for me. I love you all very much. Barbara gets bored if I take too long to write. So I hope I made sense in this letter. Hope Loretta can mail this Friday or Saturday on her way home. Love you very much, mom. So a few weeks after this letter was written, Becky convinced all of her children to come home for one last Christmas. Even Sheila said she would bring her growing family over for a meal the day after Christmas. Ugh. I would never set foot in that monster's home again. You could not. And she's pregnant? Well, she already had a baby. Since their marriage, Sheila and Dennis had welcomed a baby boy named Michael, who was now just three months shy of two years old. So he's a little like 21 month old. Also, I was like talking to Nathaniel about this and he's like, as Dennis, I would be like, fuck no, I'm sorry. I don't care how much you love your mom. Yeah, You are not going back to that house. No way. There's no way Dan would- no, Dan especially after he went and um def- and like stood up against Aww. dude. Like there's no going back from that. You have to break all ties. You can't yeah. like go back for a holiday afterwards. No. While Becky was making plans for a festive holiday reunion, Ronald was making very different plans. He quit his job at the convenience store and while picking up presents for the kids at Walmart, also bought himself a little something, a 22 caliber revolver. On Tuesday, December 22nd, 1987, while the youngest children were in school, Ronald set his dark and deadly plan into action. He chained the dog to the doghouse so it wouldn't interfere. He then waited until his eldest son, Gene, entered the home, there for a visit for the holidays and to collect his three-year-old daughter, Barbara. Little Barbara was still napping and Gene was just walking down the hall after peeking in on her. Gene barely got a greeting out of his mouth before his father began beating him with a crowbar. What? Yep. He brought little Gene down. And who is this report from? This is from basically the cops had to put together a chronology based on the forensic evidence after everything was done. So that's where I'm not like wondering the whole time. Yeah. So basically Ryan Green got his reports from police reports and essentially Ronald really never talked about this. So I think that they got some scant details out of him as far as when they put things together, he would confirm some details, but he didn't willingly tell them anything. Yep. Yep. Okay. So this took the local police, the state police, and the FBI sending in forensics teams and criminologists to kind of retrace all the steps afterwards. Yeah, okay. He brought Gene down to his knees immediately with one hit directly to the face. He then continued to bash him until the skull had fractured. He then beat the face, head, and torso until it was clear that Gene was dead. Becky heard the commotion from the kitchen and turned in horror to run when she saw her son's crumpled body and Ronald wielding the bloody crowbar. He chased her down quickly, connecting the crowbar to the back of his wife's skull. And then once she was down, he beat her back until all of her ribs were broken. And again, this is from like the coroner's report. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. 
Ronald brought the crowbar down over and over again, splattering blood all over the narrow hallway and kitchen. He finished Becky off by shooting her in the back of the head with a twenty-two revolver. Not necessary. Oh, God. Startled awake by the gunshot, sweet three-year-old Barbara began to cry. He let the child cry while he went and drank a beer from the fridge. So I don't know if he confirmed that or how they knew that, but it was in the Ryan Green book. And I was like, that's fucking cold. And where's uh, little Jean's wife? So she wasn't there. Jean was by himself coming to pick her up. So she didn't actually get killed in the massacre. Okay. Oh. He then entered her room where he strangled the three-year-old with his bare hands. Wow. Ronald then, one by one, dragged Becky, Jean, and little Barbara out to the cesspit where he doused them with kerosene and covered the pit with a tarp and cinder blocks. He did a half-hearted cleanup job to wash away the blood, threw away the soiled sheets from where baby Barbara had urinated during the murder, and then settled in to watch daytime television and drink beer until his younger children came home from school. When the time came, he waited out in the driveway to meet the kids. He brought the kids into the house and told them that he and their mother had a Christmas surprise for them. Oh my God. I know, this is just stomach churning. He said it was in the backyard and he would need them to stay in their rooms until it was their turn or the surprise would be ruined. Ronald said that they would be doling out the presents from eldest child to youngest and asked 17-year-old Loretta to come with him first. She was confused when he led her to a full rain barrel and her mother was nowhere in sight. With strength and resolve born from his Navy and Air Force days, Ronald took his second-born daughter's head and held it under the water until she drowned. Oh, my God. It was a mighty struggle, and after determinedly snuffing the life out of Loretta, he dragged her wet corpse to the septic pit and threw her in with her mother, brother, and niece. He repeated the process one by one for all of the children— 14-year-old Eddie, then 11-year-old Marianne, and then finally the baby, the last of his children with wife Rebecca, little Becky, only eight years old. So crazy. It's so methodical and efficient because obviously, you know, they still might not have been able to get away from him if he just like opened fire on all of them, but it was, they were still fairly old. I mean, Loretta was 17, Eddie was 14. Those are kids that can fight back, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, And the worst part was that Becky was too short to be easily dunked in the rain barrel. So Ronald strangled her to death with his bare hands, just like Barbara. It takes so long to strangle somebody. And like, even, even a child, like I'm, I'm sure the little, little ones was probably easier, but like looking at your dad while he's killing you. I mean, absolutely insane. It's just, it's goes beyond anything that you can comprehend, you know? So he then dragged her and the rest of the kids into the cesspit and he soaked the corpses in more kerosene, covered the pit with a tarp and placed the barbed wire over the mass grave to keep scavenging animals out. His gruesome work done, Ronald retired to the living room where he drank beer and watched TV for the next four nights and three full days. Over Christmas Eve, 
and Christmas Day of 1987, will five out of seven of his children, his wife of 27 years, and three-year-old granddaughter froze in a septic cesspit. Yep. He laid in wait, just passing time watching Christmas specials and getting drunk until the appointed time on December 26th when his two remaining children and their families were scheduled to return to the family home. You know what's crazy? A gift. What? Is that um, Sheila didn't like reach out to the family members over the over Christmas to check in on them and say hi. Well, that's what I thought too. Um, because I said to Nathaniel, I was like, I wouldn't go over there if I hadn't talked to my mom. No, but then I remembered, but I remembered he restricts access to the phone. They actually didn't have a phone at the compound. Remember? Oh my God. Okay. So not hearing from their mom who like only way of talking to them was like smuggling letters out. It sounds like, or when he like let her go into town to use a phone, I guess <laughs> this wouldn't be unsurprising or out of the ordinary I guess it just seems weird it feels like it, it feels like a like a mix of like military control shit and like cult vibe mm-hmm. oh super culty vibe it definitely it also has that like um the crazy uh like not real Mormons, but like, you know, like the the insane like offshoots that like marry their young women and have take multiple wives and stuff. Like yeah. he had a very creepy like Warren Jeffs feel to him too, you know? Ugh. Yeah. So this was, their families were scheduled to return home to the family home as a gift to their long suffering mother. It doesn't sound like this is something that happened every year either. It was just like, this was her last hurrah essentially. And instead of a home-cooked holiday meal, Christmas carols on the stereo, and the warm embrace of their mother and siblings, William and Sheila would only find horror and death. Did they, do you think that he got wind that she was going to leave? I for sure think he figured it out. I think that was the the straw that broke the camel's back as far as he was going to, she was going to leave. And that also, I think why he allowed her to have this ruse of a reunion is to lure the entire family to the yeah. home so we could yeah. kill all of them. Yeah. Because they were, it sounds like Billy, William, and Gene were like helping their mom. So in mm-hmm. his mind, they're all operating against him, you know? Yeah. yeah. Billy, his wife Renata, and their 20-month-old son Trey were due just after midday on December 26th, Boxing Day. The children and Becky had intentionally planned on Sheila's family arriving last in the hopes that amidst the bustling family celebration, any tension between Ronald and Dennis or Ronald and Sheila would be diffused. So that's why Billy and his family were coming actually earlier than Sheila and her family. When Ronald heard Billy's car on the gravel outside, he got in position with the 22 revolver. As the family entered the mobile home, Ronald shot Billy squarely in the chest. The bullet punched through his heart, and then rattled around inside of him, bouncing off his ribs and eviscerating his organs. Renata rushed to her husband's side, and as she bent, Ronald shot her right in the head, killing her instantly. Oh, my God. Little Trey, barely over a year and a half years old, just stood there gaping at his parents. Ronald scooped him up and carried him to the backyard where he plunged the tiny little boy 
into the full rain barrel where his aunts and uncle had also met their grim fate. He held the baby by his ankles, his body completely submerged until Trey stopped struggling. Wow. Wow. This guy's a monster. Just a monster. That is a baby. Like... All didn't really change between 20 months and two years. Like those four months, just you go from like still being a little baby fat kiddo to like a tiny little person. Yeah. Like I can't, it's just, it's unfathomable, you know? Yeah. No. Ronald then carried the small corpse into the living room where he lined him up with his parents neatly in a row as if for a viewing at a funeral home. He drank a beer while he waited for Sheila, the true target of his rage, love, and obsession. By attempting to protect her, her family had inadvertently delivered her to Ronald last. In his twisted perspective, he was truly able to save the best for last. When he finally heard the McNulty's at his door, he shouted for them to enter. Dennis walked in first, holding six-year-old Sylvia's hand. Ronald welcomed them into the home. Upon entering the living room, the family noticed the bodies. Before they could react, he shot Dennis in the chest and put the gun flush against Sheila's chest, where according to Ryan Green, he said, you have destroyed me. You have destroyed your mother, your brothers, your sisters. You have destroyed all of us. You are a traitor and I will see you in hell. And then he shot her. Wow. Yeah. So I don't know how they know what he said to her unless like he admitted to that one part, which he might have. Um, but it doesn't seem like he gave anybody else notice or said anything else to any of the other victims. Yeah. <sighs> Um, if his like mission was just if he was I mean as like he obviously is as psychotic as we think he is but like he was probably fixated on the fact that he actually thinks that Sheila destroyed everyone because she wasn't submissive to him it all started he would very firmly believe that all of the devastation of his life happened when Sheila told her counselor about yeah. who the real father was like I don't I don't know if he ever knew that Jean called it in anonymously. He might have thought that Sheila willingly told the counselor. Yeah, yeah. Though she was most likely dead after the very first bullet pierced her heart, Ronald unloaded the rest of the magazine on, into her body with a rage. What about so the baby? Just, well, Ronald then swiftly picked up his 21-month-old grandson, Michael, and choked him to death. So poor little Sylvia is watching this all happen and she was six years old and she was apparently desperately trying to wake up Dennis. Like she didn't understand that he was dead. And so she was trying to get him to get up, like most likely trying to get her real father, you know, because he was by all accounts her father at that point to save her from this madman who was her biological father and grandfather that she really didn't know because – I think it had been like three years at least since they had escaped, three or four maybe. So Ronald plucked his daughter up and choked her until she was dead, the little girl. Wow. Mm-hmm. He laid out Dennis and Sylvia next to Billy, Renata, and Trey. Ronald then placed Sheila in a place of honor on the dining room table and covered her with Becky's best tablecloth. So he put her in an elevated position while the rest of the family was laid on the ground. Yeah, psycho. 
psycho. He wrapped each toddler boy in plastic and placed them into their father's car trunks, one child in each car, and moved the cars to another part of the property where a couple of junkers sat abandoned. Ronald then sprinkled more kerosene over the dead corpses, though he never set the bodies ablaze or revealed to the police what the purpose was to this step. It would be investigators' best guess later on that it was just to mask the smell of decomposition. Okay. Because he did not set them on fire. So I think it's just because the kerosene smell was really strong. Maybe it covered up the death smell. Who knows what this guy is thinking? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's like insane. Having just ruthlessly annihilated 14 members of his family, Ronald Gene Simmons changed out of his bloody clothes and took himself out for a celebratory drink. He downed several rounds at a local watering hole. Not a single sad post-Christmas barfly guessed that he had just committed a bloody mass murder. Dude, could you imagine finding out, though, that, like, the guy you made small talk at the bar the day after Christmas had actually just murdered 14 people? Devastating. That's crazy. I would be shook for life. I need you to tell me immediately how he gets caught. Oh, he gets caught. Don't worry. But unfortunately, he takes more people out before he gets caught. What? Yeah. Okay. So we're going to jump right into it. The next day was a Sunday, and he spent the day surrounded by corpses, drinking beer, and watching TV. He decided that his thirst for blood and revenge was not satisfied. On Monday, December 28th, Ronald awoke early to set his final mission into place. He first went to Walmart to restock on ammunition and then directly to the law offices of Peel, Eddie, and Gibbons. For Kathy or Joyce? For Kathy. Kathy first. Oh, my God. He went for Joyce later, but Kathy was number first. Number Number first. first. This story is really getting to me. We're just going to go with number first because I can't even think straight. I feel so sad for these people. Wearing a straw cowboy hat pulled down over his face, he entered the law office and immediately found his prey. Kathy Kendricks was sitting behind the reception desk as usual. Witnesses in offices situated near the reception recalled hearing a single scream and then gunshots. Ronald, ever the talented marksman, remember he got that award? Yeah. Had shot her directly in the head. Kathy was only 24 and dead by the time the ambulance arrived. Oh, my God. Ronald left before anyone saw him. He basically rolled in, shot her. She screamed when she saw him. She knew who he was. Yeah. Shot her, peaced out before anyone saw him. She was alone in reception. Nobody knew if it had been a targeted shooting or why it had happened. It was just a senseless violence because no one could connect him to this at this point. But Ronald was far from over with his killing spree. He was just warming up for the day. He then drove to Taylor Oil Company, where he had briefly worked right after the law firm, and he had been fired. He switched his disguise from the straw cowboy hat to a baseball cap and started firing on sight the moment he entered the building. Ronald immediately gunned down trucker and volunteer firefighter J.D. Chaffin, who died on the spot. J.D. and Ronald had not been acquainted during Ronald's tenure at Taylor Oil, so it seemed he was just a casualty of Simmons' rage and bloodthirstiness. Soon, Ronald spotted the owner, a man named Russell Rusty Taylor, who owned both Taylor Oil and the Sinclair Mini Mart, where Simmons had worked last. 
Russell was hit twice and badly wounded before another worker arrived on the scene, wandering back through from the bathroom. Julie Money had just started as a bookkeeper for the oil company. She thought that all of the noise and theatrics were probably the latest in a series of good-natured pranks that the boys had been playing on her since she started. She froze in place when she spotted Chaffin's body, and before she could unfreeze, Simmons had his revolver pressed to her forehead. I'd be <sighs> shitting my pants. Yeah. The mother of two screamed no and leapt for cover as he pulled the trigger. The bullet seared a line through her short blonde hair as she fell behind some crates. She had the good sense to play dead. Ronald fled the scene, laying down a flurry of covering fire that missed everyone present. Thankfully, Russell Taylor was saved by paramedics before the next call for help even came in. But oh. J.D. Chaffin didn't make it. Oh. This is devastating. So Ronald was working so efficiently and quickly that the town's police officers were not yet able to predict who the mad gunsman was, nor the next stop on his rampage. Having, he believed, taken out the boss, Ronald decided to head over to the Sinclair Mini Mart to take out some of his co-workers as well. Oh my God. I mean, this is a serious rampage. Yeah. He reloaded his gun in the parking lot, switched hats once more, and walked in the convenience store, striding with purpose up to his former colleague, Rebecca Woolery, whom he shot in the chest while she stood behind the counter. The store manager, David Salyer, heard the gunshot and came running from the back office. Recognizing Simmons, David threw a chair at him in an effort to fight him off. David was still hit with a bullet, but the chair had thrown off the marksman and neither he nor Rebecca's gunshot wounds proved to be fatal. So they were Great. extremely injured, but they both lived. That's amazing. Yeah, I think he's losing it right now. Yeah. He's yeah. like starting to lose his shots. He's getting messy. He's getting desperate. Yeah. Um, also enter the great hero of this story. Um, both victims would survive because an unexpected third party intervened before Simmons could deliver a killing blow. Ronald was not the only one in the store who had seen combat. The store's other veteran, Bill Mason, had been stocking shelves just out of sight and responded to the threat with trained efficiency. He began pelting Ronald with full cans of soda, interrupting any attempt to aim and preventing him from delivering a coup de grace on either of the fallen mini-mart workers. Oh my God, what a hero. What a total hero. How brave. Like all he has is cans of soda and he's like fuck it if i'm going down i'm gonna save some lives yeah here's to you bill mason wherever you are sir we salute you oh my god wow hero such a hero under attack for the first time since the beginning of his great mission ronald retreated to the car and sped off flustered fuck yeah bill mason so safely back in the car and knowing now that he had been recognized, he was yeah. completely full of rage and he had to hurry to do the last target on his list. Can you guess who it is? Joyce. Of course. So of course, the last stop on his massacre was Woodline Motor Freight. He stepped out of the car and calmly walked through the offices, concealing his gun in his belt until he reached the back office of Joyce Butts, where he aimed the gun and fired two shots, one into Joyce's head and one into her chest. She collapsed without a word. But 
Thanks to the efforts of the doctors and surgeons, Joyce would shockingly survive this homicide attempt. Holy shit. What? <laughs> yeah, I think whatever the the higher power, we don't know who it is, is was like, you know what? You've done enough. You've done enough, Ronald. We're going to save the last few. Oh my God, that's incredible. Isn't that unfreaking believable? Like what a tough broad. Like wow. way to go, Joyce. So after this, which he thought Joyce was dead, of course, there's an account from the woman that he took hostage now. Okay. So this is also from the book. He then locked himself in one of the computer offices where he found one of his old coworkers, a young woman by the name of Vicki Jackson, crouching on the floor. He dragged her to her feet and she braced herself for worse treatment to come, but calm had swept over Ronald now. All of the fire and fury drained out of him, and he set the gun down on the table beside him, even offering his backup pistol to her if it would help to calm her down. He gently told her to call the police, that he wasn't going to hurt her, and that it was all over now. After she had made the call, he explained, I've come to do what I wanted to do. It's all over now. I've gotten everybody who wanted to hurt me. Oh, my God. What a little piece of shit. Yeah. You really, your feelings were hurt? Everyone picked on me. Mm. Oh my God. For the next few minutes, he made polite small talk with Vicki Jackson, who must have been shitting her pants. Yeah. Asking her about her Christmas and talking about the weather and people that they knew about town. He asked her why she had never come to visit him when he worked in the mini mart, and she told him that she must have just missed his shifts when she happened to be in. He offered her a cigarette to calm her nerves. She was shaken by how normal he seemed after everything he had just done. He was so calm that she even managed to get a little bit of information out of him before the police arrived. He had taken her. Yeah, which is, this is very valuable because he did so little talking to the authorities afterwards. He had taken her hostage and arranged to be arrested in this way, not because he was scared of death. In fact, he was absolutely certain that he would be killed for the things he had done. But because he feared that in a shootout with the police, he might end up paralyzed or in a vegetative state. He had seen things like that happen to people back in his army days, and the thought of that complete loss of control absolutely haunted him. It would have been the complete antithesis of everything that he had worked towards his entire life. He knew that he was going to die, but that death was going to be on his own terms with all of his work in this world done and all of the wrongs done against him avenged. I like that's what I want to have happened to him for him to have been conscious but like a vegetable yes yes and like that thing where like you like can see and hear but you can't talk or move that's what I wish for him when the police arrived Simmons was taken into custody immediately he calmly handed over his gun was searched and then put into a van for transportation to the Pope County police station As the reports came rolling in, Ronald refused to discuss his crimes, only nodding in affirmation as the police asked him about the various reported shootings. Eventually, like I discussed at the beginning, they took him to the hospital for a psych evaluation and discovered his family was almost certainly in jeopardy. The police rushed out to Mockingbird Hill, but it became devastatingly clear from the moment they entered the home that they were much, much too late. In the span of less than a week at what was supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year, Ronald Simmons had viciously murdered 16 people and seriously injured four others. 
14 of those were his own family, including the many children as young as only 20 months. It's just, it's so heartbreaking. Yeah, that's like infathomable. Uh, the local police called in the state cops and even the feds for help with the forensics, but it still took days for them to find, especially the two little boys' bodies wrapped in plastic in the trunks of the cars. Through the forensics, the police were able to reconstruct a chronology of the events as presented in Obeying Evil and this podcast. Deputy Bolin quickly came to the conclusion that to execute the murders with such precision, Ronald had to be a highly organized and calculating man. Ronald refused completely to cooperate with the psychiatrist at the hospital, but was deemed competent to stand trial for his crimes nonetheless on the basis that the doctor believed he knew the difference between life and death and what was right and wrong. Simmons was sent to prison to await trial where he was kept out of Gen Pop for his own protection. Yeah, I mean, he still killed a bunch of babies and yeah. raped his own daughter. They're not going to like yeah. you there. No. His lawyers were a pair of public defenders assigned to this impossible case. Ronald had committed the single largest mass murder in all of Arkansas, yeah. as, well, as well as committing the worst crime involving a single family ever in U.S. history. Not to mention, like I was just saying, Ronald wanted nothing to do with his defense. And in fact, he several times said he wanted to just get through the trial and be sentenced to death. He was determined to plead guilty on every charge and refused to give any justifications or provide any mitigating evidence to assist his case. The prosecution had to essentially create motive out of the evidence because Ronald also refused to give them a confession or any reason why he had done this. Just oh my god. String him up. That's what I say. I mean, I wonder like what type of mark this like creates for the military too. Oh, well, it also they said later on that they had to have psychiatrists come in for the entire town because everyone was affected by this. Like, I mean, think about being one of those kids' teachers. Like you would beat yeah. yourself up over how you didn't see this coming. Every one of the people that were shot, all this is a very close-knit community. It affected everyone in that town. People were just so stunned, you know? This was like a like a Columbine type killing, like where all of a sudden there's just this explosion in, of incredible violence. And as a community, you you don't know what you could have done to prevent it. And yeah. you're just horrified at the, you know, aftermath. So the prosecution found letters sent between Sheila and Ronald in a secret safe deposit box Ronald had rented. And using those, they created the narrative that a sexually aggressive, incestuous rapist turned on his family when he lost what was in his mind, his, i.e. control over Sheila. Yeah. The literal only time Ronald worked with any of his attorneys throughout two trials and an appeal process was to attempt to get these letters thrown out as evidence. And of course they were let in because fuck yeah. you, Ronald. And he became so enraged when the prosecutor was reading his intimate love confessions to his daughter that he actually attacked him in open court. So oh this is, this is spine tinglingly scary. Ronald jumped over the defense table, cold cocked the prosecutor, John Bynum, when an officer of the court went to intervene while he was on top of the prosecutor, Ronald attempted to grab his gun from the holster from the officer and nearly succeeded. 
Luckily, it caught on the holster strap for about a half second. And the other officers were able to basically reach him and dogpile on him. But if he had successfully gotten that gun out, I can't even imagine the mayhem that could have How occurred. is he not handcuffed? I know. you. This is a guy that you want chained to the floor. Shackled. <laughs> yes, exactly. This is insane that he wasn't. It's crazy. So as they were pulling him out of the courtroom, he was screaming murderous threats at the prosecutor. Needless to say, he was swiftly convicted of the murders and sentenced to death penalty by lethal injection. Oh my God. It's just so, so terrifying to contemplate. Ronald refused all appeals, making the following statement. I, Ronald Gene Simmons Sr., wanted to be known that it is my wish and my desire that absolutely no action by anyone be taken to appeal or in any way change this sentence. It is further respectfully requested that this sentence be carried out expeditiously. The trial court ruled that he was of competent mind to waive further proceedings and appeals and allowed it. However, whereas before Ronald had to be separated from other prisoners due to his heinous crimes, especially against the children, now he needed to be separated because the other death row inmates believed by waiving his own right to appeal, he would be jeopardizing their chances of beating a death sentence. And they wanted to kill him. So apparently one of the guys that was on death row with him even tried to appeal on his behalf to the Supreme Court because they were so scared of this becoming legal precedent. Yeah. Because this was basically, he was like fucking up everybody's chances at, you know, the due process. Yeah. Um, but no, they were like, no, he wants to die. Just let him die. Which I totally get where all the other prisoners were coming from. But I also am like, oh, please just kill him. Yeah. On May <laughs> yeah, please just let him go. On May 31st, 1990, then-Governor of Arkansas Bill Clinton signed Simmons's death warrant, and the execution was set for June 25th of the same year. This was the fastest pipeline from conviction to execution in U.S. history since the death penalty had been reinstated in 1976. Honestly, couldn't have happened to a better guy. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I know, I'm like, the death penalty is such a, Hot button. I know, but it's like that. It's there for guys like this. This but is also exactly. Like this is exactly it. So Andy and I made it very clear previous shows that we are not supporters of the death penalty. There's just too many instances when innocent people are killed. However, there's multiple witnesses. He confessed to it. You know, essentially, he didn't give details, but he confessed to doing these crimes. This is the type of person that should not Did be allowed to breathe. Doesn't it also, though, feel kind of like an out for him, though? Honestly, I do. I think life in prison is worse yeah. than and being, death. like, tortured and, like, all the people who know what he did, like, baby killing well, and baby child. because of um, the lack of control over his autonomy and his day-to-day -day life would be controlled by other people. Yeah. But I don't know. He also did well in the military, and that that happens there too. You know, like your schedule. No, it was by choice. But it was by choice. Yeah, I definitely wish they, as much as it's gratuitously compelling for me to know that he died, I think it would have been a better punishment for him to have to live forever in jail. Yeah, and it's just interesting to think about, like for criminals who 
have done. I mean, obviously we haven't covered anyone who's done anything as heinous, but comparable crimes, you know, and like what the psychological yeah, this is, is of all of these uh, criminals. Cause he was like, he wanted to die. That yeah, was this like, is, this is interesting. Cause it's our first U S execution because we, the only other person that actually was killed for their crimes was Jacqueline back in Victorian England. Yeah. Yeah. And we've had people like the Copelands who were sentenced to death, but they either died in prison or they were released before, you know, the death sentence came to be. So this is the first time we're actually talking about what the process is in the death sentence and and what an execution looks like, you know? And it's very sobering. I mean, these are important questions to ask if, you know, even beyond just the moral code, is it a worse punishment than life in prison? I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, this scumbag. In the days before the execution was to take place, Ronald refused all visitors, namely his attorneys and any member of the clergy. No one else wanted to visit him. No. But he, was, he didn't want to see anybody. Do you want to know what his last meal was? Dog shit. <laughs> that would have been if he got what he deserved. I think last meals are fascinating. So I was excited I could find his. It was filet mignon, six dinner rolls, tomato slices, two raw onions. Raw. Why? Ew. Because he's a fucking not human. That's why. A banana and a seven up. What the hell? You know what mine would be? What would be yours? You, You don't know. You can't guess. It would be... I'll give you a clue. It's from Boston. It, it's from Boston? Mm-hmm. Would it be the, like, Anna's Taqueria? Mm-hmm. No. Um, what would it be? Crispy pie from Brown Sugar Cafe. Oh, my gosh. I should have guessed that. I thought yes. you know. I know, oh, I know a few people, a few close friends of mine will know, like Alyssa will know. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I guess I wasn't like hanging out with you as much in your BU days because it's right next to BU. Oh, yeah. It was right next to our freshman oh, years. God, that was yeah. so good. They had an, one in Fenway, too, that I used to live not so far from. And the crispy pad thai is like nothing I've ever had. No, and I can't find anywhere else in the U.S. that makes it, and I can't figure out how to make it at home, and it's devastating. And I've actually thought about, like, because we were supposed to come see you, I was planning on getting it when we went up to Boston to fly out of there, mm. and I was actually thinking about writing them and asking how they make it. Can you please? Because I want some now really bad. <laughs> <laughs> really, really, really bad. How do you do it, brown sugar? Give us your secret. No, I was going to write them and be like, I'm seven months pregnant and can't travel because of COVID. And all I want is your crispy pad thai that I like literally gained 40 pounds off of from in college. Like, can you please know, pack or just like pack some in dry ice and ship it overnight or something. Yeah. And then I'd write like Corp Kunka in Thai. So like they have sympathy for me, which is just thank you. <laughs> I can say Sawarika. Oh my god. Okay, we gotta get this girl some crispy pad thai from Brown Sugar Cafe. Okay, what about, what's yours though? What's your I think mine would be a full Thanksgiving dinner with all the trimmings. 
Really? Yeah, I would want like the turkey and the stuffing and I would want like sage sausage stuffing and gravy and garlic mashed potatoes and macaroni and cheese and ocean spray canned jelly. That's the only jelly that I like. And then an apple pie for dessert with a scoop of French vanilla ice cream. And then what to drink? Oh, like 18 bottles of Marlboro (laughs) New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Same. It goes with my crispy pad pie really well. Yeah, too. it goes actually a lot better with yours, but I'll take it with Thanksgiving too. <laughs> okay, cool. I'm glad we got that out of the way. Yeah, it sounds, both of our meals sound a lot better than this dinner rolls, tomato slices, raw onions, a banana, and 7-Up. Ugh. Can you have alcohol? Would they bring you alcohol? No, they won't. They won't bring you alcohol. Not not unless you're getting knocked off in Victorian London, apparently, where she could get all the ale and wine she wanted. Um, Yeah. I would have, it would be like, mine would be like a Thanksgiving meal and toilet wine because I would make some. (laughs) Moonshine. Moonshine from my toilet. When asked if Ronald had any last words, he said, justice delayed, finally be done, is justifiable homicide. Freak. Yeah, which I basically think he means this is right. You guys are right to kill me, essentially. It took 17 minutes from the time of the lethal injection to declare that Ronald Gene Simmons Sr. was finally dead. The prison held onto his body for the mandatory time, but nobody came to claim it. Which is kind of what happens when you murder your entire family. Nobody's there to claim your miserable bones. Yeah, what were they expecting? Yeah. He was buried in a pauper's grave in Star City, Arkansas, far away from the families of his victims and good fucking riddance. I hate him. Luckily, though I'm sending you off for Christmas with this terrible story, we have one more story of 2020 and it is a doozy this one is like an unbelievably wild ride with a twist and I think that this week in conclusion Andy and I just want to say thank you and Merry Christmas yeah we love you and I hope you get everything you want and get to virtually hang out with your families and friends yes and I know that You know, it's rough to have things that are thankful for this year, but we're exceptionally thankful to you guys for hanging out with us for the last five months, which has been epic. You're the best fans in the world. We have the most incredible listeners and you've allowed Andy and I to have so much fun every week bringing these gruesome, terrible stories into your homes and ears and hearts. Yeah, I mean, I, that pretty much sums it up. That, that about does it. So, you guys, drink some eggnog for us. We love you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>